Luke chapter 21 tonight. Uh, have you ever, you ever seen something coming and you know it's going to happen and you can watch as it unfolds? You can't really stop it, but you can see it coming. I remember one time that I saw uh, one of my kids like running and I said, he's about to fall. And sure enough, it, it, it was a great fall. <laughs> it was, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Hopti together again. It was, it was, it was quite the fall, and I knew it was coming. Like I could watch it developing, and I couldn't really stop it. Like it's, you know, it just it was happening too fast to do anything, but it was slow enough that I could kind of watch it happen. I had a friend who worked for Movie Gallery. Now, uh, for those of you who don't remember Movie Gallery. <laughs> It was like a blockbuster, but not quite as well known. Um, he said that um, he was he was a manager, um, a regional manager with Movie Gallery. And so he went around all over the place, dealing with different stores, all in a big area and that kind of thing. And he said that there was one day at work, they announced for the first time that they were going to be investing in some new things and that they were getting debt to help pay for it. And he said that was a red flag to him. He knew immediately because this company had been gung-ho against debt. I mean, they were on the Dave Ramsey plan. You don't have a single penny of debt. And then suddenly they're going to borrow all this money to pay for this new venture. He said, I knew something was wrong then. And sure enough, movie gallery is no more for a reason. Uh, they got too saddled with debt. Um, the video industry suffered as a whole, and so they went the way of all other video companies, and they are no more. Sometimes you can see the signs coming, and you know what's coming, but you can't, you, you can't stop it. All you can do is just get ready for when it happens. Last week we talked about the temple, Jesus in the temple and people are talking about how beautiful the structure is. Look at the great stones. Look at the marvelous gifts. And Jesus says, well, it's going to be destroyed. In fact, there's coming a day when not one stone is left on another. The destruction of the temple was a physical representation of what had already happened spiritually. The, the, the religion that the Jews practiced, especially in and around the temple, had been corrupted to the core. It had already been destroyed. And now the temple would soon follow suit. As soon as he says this, then come the questions. And you know the questions that people are going to ask. You say, the temple is going to be completely destroyed. The questions are going to be when and how am I going to know that it's about to happen? When's it going to happen? And what's going to be my sign to let me know, okay, it's coming close, right? Verse 7 of chapter 21. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? That's when. And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? What should I look for? And so Jesus begins to answer their question. But instead of just directly answering the question, he doesn't even answer the question of when. You see, no, no man knows the day or the hour. It's not appointed to us to know the specific timing of these things, which really grates on my nerves because I want to know. I'm, I'm an inquiring mind and I want to know. But God doesn't do that. And that's probably a good thing because if you knew what time and what day it would happen, what would you do until then? 
Probably not, probably not what you should be doing. You'd either be dancing in the street celebrating, or you'd be so worried about it coming that you became of no good in the meantime. Or I don't know, maybe you'd come up with something different. I'd do one of the two. I'm not sure which. Maybe some of both. Maybe I'd start dancing until I realized the day before, oh no, it's tomorrow, (laughs) and then freak out. I don't know. But Jesus, instead of telling them when, he does tell them what to look for, though. And he gives several different signs, not just one. They ask, what is the sign? Jesus says, well, let me give you the signs, plural. So let's take a look at these. First, there will be deceivers. Verses 8 and 9. And he said, see to it that you are not led astray. Boy, that is good advice. We are, especially when it comes to this type of thing, we are inundated with all kinds of deception and false information. We live in a time in which we have so much information bombarding us moment after moment, day after day, week after week, month after month. We, we have a hard time telling what's true and what's fake. Even those things that are true sometimes aren't true because of what they're told. There will be people. A scientist could put out a study that says smiling has a correlative effect with being happy. You will hear on the TV, smiling makes you happy. Now, is that what the study said? No, not exactly. They just go together. It doesn't matter. People take things and misunderstand them and put them out in completely different ways. How many times have you heard the same statistic quoted by hundreds of people, even though you know that that statistic is a false quote. 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's not a real statistic, folks. Hadn't been real for years and years and years. Doesn't stop some people from saying it. You, you Maybe you've heard the 77 cents on a dollar. A woman makes 77 cents for every dollar a man makes. It's not exactly what that survey said. That scientific study found that the average wage of the average woman was 77 cents when a man's was a dollar. But that didn't account for what she did, how many hours she did it, how long she had done it, whether she had taken leave or whatever else. It didn't account for anything else other than we just took the average woman and the average man and we compared them. In other words, even if the information is true, it may not be true in the sense that you think it is. Jesus says, don't be deceived. There's a lot of false information out there. Some of them sound so well documented, so elegantly put that it's easy to get lost in it. Jesus says, make sure you are not deceived. The hardest part, the hardest part is often weeding out what's not true and figuring out what's true. Isn't it a lot easier when we know the facts to make the right choice? Jesus says, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. You know, you really want to know one of the best ways to tell a false prophet from a genuine prophet. John the Baptist was a genuine prophet. People asked him, are you the Christ? You know what he said? No, that's the sign of a genuine prophet. The genuine prophet is willing to forsake the popularity and the approval of others in order to make sure they get the truth right. The the prophet, the, the genuine prophet of God is willing for you to leave him to follow God. 
John was willing to say, hey, I'm not he, it's him. He's the one you're looking for. Only genuine prophets will do that. False prophets, they can't have that because it's not he, the false prophet, it's me. They say, I am he and the time is at hand. (laughs) What was that book? 88 Reasons Jesus Will Return in 88? Maybe he meant 2088, I don't know. There used to be a time when people thought, well, we know exactly when Jesus is coming back because we know that seven is a perfect number. So there have to be seven millennia of history. And we've already had six, so we know that the seventh millennium is the perfect millennium. And if you do the calculations, it comes out to this day. Others saying, we know exactly when Jesus is coming back because there are certain things in the sky that are happening. There are four blood moons in a year. Look, it's right here. It's right here. All you've got to do is arrange the Hebrew letters in just such a way and then read in this line right here and all of these will convert into numbers and then when you take the numbers and you recalculate those back into words, you'll find that the Bible says this is when it's going to happen. They're going to be deceivers. Now, some of them are much smoother talking. Some of them really seem to have it together. Don't be deceived. The funny thing is, there's always deceivers. I mean, Garden of Eden, there was a deceiver. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. When you pick up the newspaper and you read about what's going on, relax, chill out, it's okay. These things must first take place. This is par for the course. You know why wars and tumults are par for the course? Because sin is par for the course. But the end will not be at once. Don't, every time you see something, don't think that it's, that it is the sign of the end. Don't think that everything you see means that Jesus is coming back today or tomorrow. Now, let's also not make the opposite mistake. Don't fall asleep saying, well, it's got to be a long way away because there's a bunch of stuff that needs to happen first. Jesus isn't saying that either. You see, Jesus' return is imminent, but that doesn't mean it's immediate. His return is imminent in that it is perfectly timed to exactly when God wants it. We just don't know what that time is. And so we are to be vigilant without being anxious, watchful, but it's okay to blink every now and then. It's okay to know that God has it under control, but we still live lives ready for when he does come. Don't be deceived. Don't think it's happening right this second. I'm going to tell you something. Just because you like or don't like the possibility of a vaccine does not mean that it is either God's salvation or the mark of the beast. Don't be deceived. Now, you can do whatever you want with the vaccine. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is don't let every little thing drive you to an insane position where all you say is, see, 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 now it's happening, it's happening now. Don't be deceived. Trust in God. It'll all work out, I promise. Might not be comfortable, might not be easy, but he's in control. Not only will there be deceivers, there will also be turmoil. And that turmoil isn't, is in a couple of ways. There's turmoil between the nations. Look in verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now I know some of you are thinking, well, we've had plenty of that and we're going to have plenty more. They called World War One the war to end all wars. A couple decades later, they fought another one. <laughs> There's going to be war. 
This is one of the things that is a sign of the end, but it's one of those things that keeps happening anyway. So again, don't be deceived. Just because somebody is fighting somebody else doesn't mean this is it. But be vigilant, be watchful, because Jesus is coming again. And these things that we see, they may not be the final nail in the coffin, but that don't mean they ain't building the coffin. It may not be the final piece of the puzzle, but that doesn't mean it don't fit. Because this is all working together for God's plan. That tapestry of grace, unfortunately, unfortunately, there's a lot of dark thread in it. There will be nations fighting one another. One day, one day we'll beat the swords into plowshares, but not today. One day God will take care of all that, but in the meantime, just know that it's coming. Not only turmoil between nations, there's turmoil in nature as well. Verse 11, there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So the natural world is shaking and quaking. There's famines. There's diseases. There's insects all over the place. Pests ruining crops. There's terrors. Things that that you could not possibly imagine. Even in nature, there's a testimony that something's not right. There will be turmoil. Third thing there will be is persecution. Verse 12. But before all this, even before we get to the end, before, before you see those things specifically taking place, you just go ahead and know, before all of that happens, you're going to be persecuted. The, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Now, there is the brotherly love of laying on of hands to heal those that are sick, where we pray for them and we care for them as church. Okay? That, that's not the laying on of hands. This is more the laying on of hands around necks. This is more the laying on of hands to arrest, to cast into prison, to drag before a tribunal, a judge, a court. They lay hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. There is not a single disciple except for Judas listening to this that does not go through those things. Every single one of them that survives Christ's death and sees him resurrected goes through this persecution. Now, for some of us, the persecution is different than for others. Some are thrown in prison. Some are tortured and beaten for their faith. Some are killed for their faith. For some, it's being alienated by friends or family. I know someone that said that when he accepted Christ, his family disinherited him, disowned him completely. Sometimes it's like that. This will be, Jesus says, your opportunity to bear witness. I love how Jesus puts things because because he's looking from a different perspective. You look at persecution as a bad thing to endure. He says it's an opportunity. It's a positive thing. It's a thing to be grasped. It's a thing to be taken advantage of. It's a thing to give us the opportunity to bear witness. That's a totally different way of thinking. We look at bearing witness as, do I have to? Jesus says, says no, you ought to be looking at it like, do I get to? You mean, you mean I have the chance? So you're saying there's a chance. One in a million, maybe, but, but you're saying there's a chance. There's a chance that I get to bear witness to my Jesus. Yeah, I love how he puts that. He doesn't say it's your obligation. He says it's your opportunity. 
Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. They won't be able to oppose what you're saying. You ever notice in an argument when one side makes a good point, the other side just starts attacking the person? Somebody says something that's true. The other person can't argue with that, so they just have to drag your name through the mud instead. That is a tactic of someone who's losing the debate. Someone who stands on truth doesn't have to drag names through the mud. It's amazing. Have you ever heard, have you ever heard of a time where people were so worried about the truth, genuinely worried about the truth, that they felt it necessary to squash all falsehood? I've never seen that. Now, I've seen some falsehood squash truth, but I've never seen truth try to undercut falsehood like that. I, I picture wisdom, like, like the, the, the writer of Proverbs, like Solomon, picturing wisdom, the lady wisdom, standing out, calling out in the streets, just wanting her voice to be heard. And there's Lady Folly. She's standing out and she's calling out on those same street corners to those same individuals with very similar sounding words. This idea, this war of ideas that's going back and forth. Truth doesn't need to oppress falsehood because truth will win. It just needs to be heard. That's it. Just hear it. It doesn't have to oppose falsehood with under, underhanded means. It doesn't have to silence its foes, ban its enemies, cancel its adversaries. No, truth doesn't have to do that. He says, I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. They're not going to be able to oppose you. They're not going to be able to speak a word against what you're saying. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Isn't this good news? Doesn't sound like it, but it is. I seem to remember Jesus saying that a servant is not above his master. Jesus is just telling you're you're going to walk in my way. And that means you're going to be hated. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to hate you, but some will. And that's okay. Just make sure they're hating you for his name's sake and not for your name's sake. Don't go around being a jerk and then complaining that people are persecuting you. That's not persecution. That's you getting what you deserve. But you go around being a good representative of Christ and people hate you and despise you, that's walking in the way of Christ. There will be persecution, but not a hair of your head will perish. It's interesting that he uses that phrase. I seem to remember a Bible verse, something like um, that he knows the hairs on your head and not one of them falls without his knowledge. In other words... God's saying, I got you. Don't, don't worry. They can persecute you. They can, they, can, they can do all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they prosecuted the prophets who came. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Oh, they can take your life away, but they can't take your life, not your real life. They can take this physical life. They can, they can make you go through pain and anguish. They can torture you. They can kill you physically, but they can do nothing to you spiritually. The life you have in Christ is in him, not in you. So 
Don't worry about losing it. Don't worry about having it taken away. Just endure. There will be persecution. I don't, I don't want to sound bleak. I don't want to sound like I'm setting us all up to go to, this, to go to a dungeon in the next couple of weeks. But I will say this. If there is persecution, we need to be ready. But even if there's not, we still need to be ready to bear witness. Because even if we don't get the opportunity before a court, we are in front of a court. We're in front of a court made of people who have not yet chosen whether or not to surrender to Jesus Christ. And we ought to take every advantage, the advantage of every opportunity we have to help them come to the right verdict. There will also be destruction, he shows us, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, now in the prophet's mind, Remember, things don't have to necessarily be in chronological order. The prophets see things. I think I've used this example before. It's like looking up at the night sky and seeing stars. If you look up at stars, take Orion's belt, for example. There are three stars that make up Orion's belt almost in a straight line. Those stars are hundreds of light years apart, but they look really close together from our perspective. Sometimes things look really close from the prophetic eye That when you get up to them, you find that one is way off of the other. But back here at the distance, they're right next to each other. Jesus is doing this. He's putting the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the Son of Man next to each other because there is a theme that is common between them. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is confused on when they happen. He's not. But I am saying that in that prophet's eye that he has, he sees the connection and he brings them side by side so that we can see the connection too. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. You asked about the destruction of this temple. Let me move back to that topic. I want you to be ready. I don't want you to be deceived. I want you to know that there are going to be things coming as to the end of the age, things coming to when the Son of Man comes back. I want you to know that those things are on the horizon, but I also want you to see the connection that this temple has with those things because the destruction of this temple will show you how God is exercising his judgment on false religion and how at the coming of the Son of Man, God will exercise his ultimate judgment on false religion. There's the connection. That's the thing that brings them together. And so he says, all right, let me jump back into the temple. You're going to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. You know the end has come for Jerusalem. You know its desolation has come near. When you see the armies around Jerusalem, that's it. Here it is. We're in the final minutes. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all. That is written. Another interesting word choice. Vengeance. I seem to remember something about vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. You mean God's actually destroying Jerusalem? Yeah. He's the one doing it. Now he's 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 using the Roman army. Because you know he's God. He can he can he has those things at his disposal. These are days of vengeance. Don't you go in that city. Now, I don't know who in their right mind would want to walk into a city surrounded by the most powerful army on earth. Not exactly what you want to do, right? But don't, don't enter it. 
And if you're in it, get out. There would be at, a, at points and times, this was actually common in the ancient world, uh, an army would surround the city, and it still, it still happens today. An army would surround the city and then say, here's your chance to get out. Now, I want you to know, if you get out, they're not exactly going to pamper you. You are a prisoner of war. But it's a whole lot better to get food every day and live to tell the tale than it is to not have any food and starve to death. There are stories so terrible of this siege, stories of how people did the unthinkable just to try to survive. If you got a chance, get out. Even today, we have some of those types of things. Um, back in World War II, the U.S. was about to drop two atomic bombs. So they took a handful of Japanese cities. They had decided where they were going to bomb, but they didn't want to just drop in those cities. They wanted to widespread it so that um, no one would know, no, the armies wouldn't know. But they wanted to give people the chance to get out. So they dropped, a couple of days in advance, they dropped little pieces of paper with Japanese words on them that basically said, within the next couple of days, the U.S. Army is going to drop an atomic bomb and we might do it on this city. Basically, get out. Get your stuff and go. Jesus says, we'll have that opportunity. You might have that opportunity in Jerusalem. Maybe when God is coming, he gives us as a whole, society as a whole, those warning signs of, hey, you need to get out. The end is near. But certainly that did happen around Jerusalem. So we have deceivers. We have turmoil. We have persecution. We have destruction. The last thing he tells us is that there will be redemption. That's kind of an interesting sign. But verse 25, and there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. There's all kinds of stuff going on, and it's going to have all of earth scratching their heads saying, what in the world is happening? People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Everybody's going to know it's coming. It's not like God's going to say, well, I'm just going to spring it on you and nobody's going to see it happening. No, he, there are all kinds of signs that something's not right. Something's about to happen. I don't know what it is. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise up your heads. Everybody else is probably in a fetal position. Everybody else is scared. Everybody else is running around. Everyone else has their head down, cowering to try to find safety. He says, stand straight, stand up tall, lift up your head. You got nothing to be afraid of because your redemption is drawing near. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Father, we pray that we would be ready for your return, whether it is so close that we can almost taste it, or whether it is many, many years beyond the end of our lives. Lord, we don't know the time, and that's probably a good thing. It's probably a good thing that we don't have it written on our calendar somewhere. Lord, we also don't know exactly when these things happen that are just before your coming. Sometimes it feels like our world is cowering in fear. Sometimes it feels like there is a deep sense of foreboding. 
And then other times it feels like everything is hunky-dory and things will just continue to be this way they are forever. Lord, we don't know when. But we do know one thing. We do know you're in control. So, Father, help us to live with a vigilance that is ready at any moment and an urgency that bids us to bear witness in every moment. Lord, help us not get deceived. Help us not be alarmed. Help us endure persecution and help rescue those who face destruction. In other words, help us live in light of your grace. Help others find it, even today. Thank you, God, for everything you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.